Hello, I'm Michael Bott. And I'm Rupert Soskin. And this is a Standing With Stones Megalithic Podcast Special. You know how on this show we often find ourselves talking about Neolithic axes, axe trade, Langdale axes, etc., etc.? Well, back in September last year, I got notification, I can't remember how, of a talk to be given at the Wiltshire Museum in Devizes entitled Taking Sides, Scandinavian Flint Axe Types in Britain by Dr Catherine Walker. Long story short... I threw my cap over the wall and booked seats for Rupert and I, and in November, we found ourselves sitting on the front row for the lecture. We struck up a conversation with Catherine after the event, and as a result, we're very proud to present this interview with her about her work, her experiences, and the insights pursuing her fascination with Neolithic axe heads has given her. Dr. Catherine Walker is a prehistorian specialising in the Neolithic of Northwestern Europe and is a visiting research fellow at Bournemouth University. She gained a first-class degree in archaeology from the University of Bristol, an MA in the European Neolithic from Cardiff University and a PhD from the University of Southampton entitled Axe Heads and Identity, an Investigation into the Roles of Identity Formation in Neolithic Britain. And that's about all you need to know. Oh, that and the fact that we recorded the interview in the saloon of a 31-foot sailing boat in Southampton Marina, as you do. Here it is. Hello and welcome to Standing With Stone's podcast. Uh, well, the third of our specials it is so far. Yeah, only the third. We aim to do better in the future, folks. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's quality, not quantity, though. Yeah, but we've got a very special interview for you uh, today. Um, welcome aboard, forgive the pun. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine. Yes, Kath Walker, Bournemouth University. Yeah, introduce uh, yourself in a bit more detail, on, Catherine. Yeah. Okay, um, well, thanks very much. I'm Kath Walker, um, an archaeologist, prehistorian, um, specialising in the Neolithic of Northwest Europe. So, for my day job, I work at the New Forest Heritage Centre in Lyndhurst, where I'm a project manager. Um, of, a, of a project there based up in the Christopher Tower Reference Library and for the rest of the week I'm Curator and Collections Manager at Hengisbury Head. Well, I'm impressed. Christ I'm impressed as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, But just so in case there are any intrusive, interesting uh, sound effects, just tell us exactly where we are <laughs> as well. <laughs> Give a bit of context. A bit of context <laughs> as in we're sitting on Yacht Broomstick, yes. <laughs> Moody S31, uh, in Townkey Marina in Southampton. So it all makes sense. Now, it's a treat it? for us. We've uh, yeah, we, we've never done a location interview before, have we? So uh, this no, is good. this is good. Yeah. Well, and I'm I want to kick off with right. uh, it's the the simple question first, Kath. What was it that first got you into archaeology? Goodness, um, I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was six years old. Wow! And uh, I spend my weekends in my grandparents' garden collecting pieces of clay pipe, pieces of china and uh, I'd have a, a washing up bowl outside and a pastry brush and I'd wash everything that I found, lay them, all, the, all the finds out in the sun to dry and I'd bag them up in freezer bags and I'd write on the outside of the bag what I'd found Wow, and, um, I'm an not... instinctive archaeologist yeah, at the age of six yeah. <laughs> And I'm not sure I realised that that was what I was doing at the time but I no. used to tell everybody I wanted to be an archaeologist and my parents thought I'd grow out of it but unfortunately I never did <laughs> Wow, okay so what was the what was the path that took you to actually becoming an archaeologist? That's well, I got to about 
14, I would, I would say, and my parents were saying to me that I couldn't do archaeology, that wasn't a proper job, I should, I should look at getting a proper job and become a teacher or something like that. And uh, I thought about becoming a music teacher, and I, I really couldn't sing, so that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the university prospectuses came through the door, and I opened ah. the first page, A for Archaeology, and it was, I was absolutely set on, on, on doing that, so that's, that's what I did. Yeah. But um, when I was a sixth form student, I went on my first excavation to Sedgeford in Norfolk, and I did a course in basic excavation and recording techniques. So I spent a week out in the field yeah. and completely loved it. And uh, it, it went from there, really. So, yeah. At what point did you find yourself gravitating gravitating towards the area that, you're, that you specialise in now? It was very early on. Yeah. It's in my first year as an undergraduate at Bristol University. So I did a course in British prehistory, as every undergraduate does, and I read Julian Thomas's Understanding the Neolithic and was completely captivated by it and said, yes, this is, this is my period of interest. And it was at the end of that first year that I did a, um, I spent 10 weeks in Zambia doing field work. Oh, yes, we were going, yeah, going, we were going to, to ask, ask you about that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it was amazing. Um, but it was in Zambia that I learned to identify and recognise worked stone. So it was a combination of what I learnt on that field trip and, and my interest in the Neolithic that really kind of came together at the end of my first year. I was interested, because I, my understanding is the Zambia thing was um, was a multi-age. Um, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, what specifically was it? Exca- you were excavating, or were you? We had three sites that we were excavating, but we also did some, some anthropological work there and um, working out with the local local school children. But we had multi-phase sites. Yeah. They were excavated a cave site where you've got. Um, thousands of years within a meter of stratigraphy. I mean, it was it was incredible oh, that would stuff. Be fabulous, yeah. And some rock art as well. So mm, yeah. Mm. But I was 19 at the time, and I wish, looking back on it, I was still quite new to archaeology. I wish I knew then what I what I know now. I'd probably appreciate the archaeology a bit more. But I it think was we can all say that one way or another. Can't <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so true. <laughs> so true. I mean, I, I think one of the things about that sort of um, uh, excavation yeah. is when something when everything is so condensed is how meticulous you have to be with every millimeter of anything oh sure yeah, yeah. and we have oh, great stories from that project i mean i could i could talk for hours about the <laughs> about the things that happened when we were out there but yeah a r- real introduction to archaeology yeah fantastic so what was it moving forwards what was it that brought you to focus particularly on axes and the axe trade Goodness. Um, I say I got interested in worked flint and stone uh, by the end of that project in Zambia because I thought this is something I feel like I'm starting to understand, so I'll, I'll go with that. And I taught myself more and more, so I was working on lithic assemblages generally. Do you want to explain what lithic assemblage means sure. for our listeners? So, so flint assemblages, so collections of flints that have been excavated from particular sites. So I mentioned the Sedgeford project. Well, I ended up looking at their um, their Ten years worth of, of flints that they'd, they'd excavated through the various seasons. So I, I looked at that particular particular group, if you like, and uh, was, was looking at other collections of flint from excavations for reference material, and, and, and just and taught myself with the guidance of others really. And there was a wonderful man called Peter Robbins who was based at Norwich Castle Museum at the time, 
And as I was learning, I'd take boxes of material to, to Peter and say, well, this is what I think it is. Will you check it for me? Until one day he said, for goodness sake, you don't need to keep coming back to me to check. You know what you're doing and um, so it started off with, with, with Flint and Stone generally. Yeah. And uh, I became interested in, for my, my, well, I'll talk a bit more about my PhD a, a bit later, I'm sure, but axe heads with rectangular sections, which came from Scandinavia, which came from Denmark. Yeah. And it was those that fascinated me first and foremost I think because coming from Norfolk originally I would I would look across I'd look out to sea and wonder we you know we talk a lot about materials coming across the channel but I wondered as an undergraduate I remember looking out across the North Sea thinking I wonder if anything crossed the North Sea as well and it was these particular Scandinavian axe heads that took my took my eye first of all I think and then uh, Fiona Rowe wonderful Fiona Rowe who sadly no longer with us who took me under her wing and started to teach me about stone and flint axe heads, introduced me to a man called Vin Davis, who again, uh, sadly no longer with us, who was the chair of the Implement Petrology Group. And Fiona Rowe asked Vin Davis if I could if I could join because I was interested in axe heads. Mm. And uh, she asked him a couple of times until one day he came to me and said, Fiona's asked me if you can join. She's, she asked me more than once, so you must be OK. So, uh, <laughs> so I was invited mm. to join the Petrology Group and it, and it went from there, really. Right. So that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful example is, uh, of, a, of a question being answered. Just, you know, well, just no, no. I'm not talking. I'm talking about that. I'm talking about Kath's question, looking out at the sea. Oh yeah, absolutely. Wondering yeah, yeah. about you know uh, if if stuff had co- yeah. come across the sea, and then uh, that one question, rather defining what was going to be your particular area for some time to come. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. So it started from the Scandinavian axe heads, which, when I was interested in them originally, my colleagues other archaeologists at the time said no there's no point looking at those they're modern collector's pieces they're things that have come across here in the last couple of hundred years we can't tell any more about them so don't bother looking at them and yeah. i think when you came to my talk in devices i mentioned mm. this which made me all the more determined to try and find out about them yeah. but they they didn't make up a thesis on their own they needed to be put in context so i needed to look at the other kinds of imported axe heads as well mm. which mm. is what i went on to do with my, my thesis, which was Axe Heads and Identity, an investigation into the role of imported axe heads in identity formation in Neolithic Britain. The snappy title you will always get with a PhD. Indeed. <laughs> Whenever I give a talk, I always pause and think, can I remember the title? <laughs> I don't think uh, either of us were going to attempt it. Axe Heads and Identity. Is we, that, which, what, we could have impressed Kath with we, that, couldn't we? We could. We quoted we the could. We missed a trick book. there. Yeah. But, yeah. But, so, so the book it's so basically you, you, that's just as, as just, but that's a synthesis of uh, of your um, thesis, just made Indeed. into more consumable English, I suppose. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's it's very close to my thesis, published by Arcade Press last year. I can mm. see a copy of it on the shelf through there. Yeah. Yes, we will. Uh, uh, we'll big that up too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but the, there's there's quite a, a gap between answering that question of, of was trade happening? Were things actually crossing the sea at that time? Yeah. But there's quite a, a leap from that to uh, the title of your PhD, identity, mm. yeah. and you know, and and that. Uh, you begin to talk about not just trade but culture and and ideas so that's quite like i say that's quite a 
a gap to leap. What, what was the yeah. impetus there, do you know? I think it's a case of not just dealing with the technology, but thinking more about the people um, who made and used and deposited these things. And even that word identity, I realised early on, we, we all sort of know what we mean by that, but it's really quite difficult to define because the way we understand it has changed over the years. The way archaeologists work with, with that as a, as a concept has changed over, over the years from looking at dots on, well, from culture history to putting dots on maps, processualism, post-processualism, and to looking at objects and other, well, axe heads in particular, as having life histories, as having biographies themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're looking at them from, from the choices of the raw materials through to the, to the, the forming of the axe heads, the, the, you know, the finishes they were given, the way they were deposited, and then their afterlives. So there's a whole story that goes, that goes with them, which interlinks with human biographies as well, which is one of the things that makes them really interesting for me. Yeah. And I think that something that we try to broach is that the general public appreciation of the work that goes into the conclusions that archaeologists and scholars come to, in that the the work that you do is so granular that you can base ideas um, in, as you say, the word identity seems like uh, something nebulous, and uh, but you can begin to talk about a Neolithic identity or uh, Neolithic ideas or ways of thinking yes. from the deep granularity of which you're looking at the subject itself. And that's, that's the thing that's of, of interest in trying to get across the deep work that's behind that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, even the fact we're talking about Neolithic in itself is, yes. a, is a you know a relatively recent construct. You've got John Lubbock in 1865 with prehistoric times and the first use of this word. But you know that that mm. in itself is is something that we've we've defined as a as a construct, if you like, mm-hmm. isn't it? But um, but it's the relationship between the object and the person and how the two yeah. things are not completely separate. I think, which is something that's really really interesting. Yeah. So what, um, for example, uh, one of the focuses is you talk about the symbolic nature yes. of uh, the axe. So what is it that makes you uh, lean towards a symbolic relationship with them as opposed to these are just so massive um, as as tools that they could do a job twice as fast as a smaller piece that we might already have had in Britain? What separates for you the functionality with the symbolism? I don't know that we do. I must admit, I turn that back. I'm not sure we do separate the functionality and the symbolism. I think they're all bound up into one. Okay. And um, I think that's, you know, an, an axe is sort of a, it's, it concentrates so much in one small thing um, now as I think it did in the past. I mean, what you're dealing with is as a piece of a place effectively a place defined by its geology by the color of its rock by the texture of its rock and that can move and that can that place a part of that place can move with that with a person as well and that's really that's really powerful that is powerful that's, really that's powerful, a lovely so. way of putting it yeah. yeah and even i mean the fact is these things were um we know they're important to past people and even in the renaissance period these things were in cabinets of curiosity among ethnographic bits and pieces and and they were part of how people at the time understood the world and their place in the world and how they you know how they perceive things around them that's not so dissimilar from people back in the neolithic i don't Mm -hmm. think um it's fascinating that absolutely is yeah and what about does the sacred come into it for you yes yeah of course yeah um i'm thinking in particular of the magnificent jadeite axe heads which were 
produced from particularly fine rock from quarry sites high in the Italian Alps at yeah. Montviso, Mont Montbegua, uh, worked by Pierre Petrocan, for example. I mean, he, he expressed the sentiment that these things, the finest of these, were not just special ceremonial objects, they were, they were sacred objects. Yeah. And they, you know, the journeys that they, they, they took and the places they originated from, the ways in which they were deposited in sort of waterlogged conditions. Mm. Um, and the fact that these things were curated, they, they, they took such long journeys to get to their final resting places yeah. that, that, you know, they were more than, than just something that was a bit special. Yeah, yeah. That's true. So, um, in terms of the exchange, so... Uh, do you have a sense of, uh, of scale of time? So, for example, something that we were talking about in, uh, in the May podcast, actually, was that uh, there was a discovery made in, uh, uh, in Siberia right. of these obsidian blades. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the petrology was done, they found that they actually came from a site that was a 1,000 miles away. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about the Mesolithic. Yes. So, so you're already talking about trade for them to... Well, Probably. Um, it's unlikely that an individual... Well, I don't know, is it unlikely that an individual would have travelled a thousand miles as a matter of course with some... I don't know. But, it's, yeah, yeah. but you're still talking about long distance for tools. Yes. Which is, uh, you know, so it's that thing of how far back in time do you think that all started? I think people have always moved a lot more than we give them credit for, mm -hmm. or at least a lot more than we think they, they did. Mm. Um, you, you refer to this... To, to trade quite a lot, but I, I wonder if we're looking at something that's it's more exchange or diplomatic gifts. That's probably or something what we a mean more by trade, isn't it? Really, exchanges. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think and but but we're certainly with some of the axe heads. They you know they they might take hundreds of years to move these distances as well. Mm, They're not. Okay. It's not just necessarily one person, you know, making yeah. an axe and then going for a very long walk with it. You know, this is mm -hmm. this is long periods of time. I mean. Part of my research was trying to refine the dating of the arrival of jade axe heads in Britain, which, you know, we've got 119, probably a few more of them now, from fine spots in Britain. But in terms of dating when they arrived, we've, most of the, the our understanding of the dating is based on the example found alongside the sweet track from the Somerset levels. Oh, yeah. So 3806 BC, based on the dendrochronology. Yeah. But... You know, and there's an example from uh, from Ken Holy in Scotland, which you know we have a fair idea of the dating of an early Neolithic date for that. But but what about what about the rest of them? They're all you know it's based on the understanding of the dates of these of these things. But you know these things were were produced hundreds of years earlier potentially. So they yeah. they were curated or they may have been curated before they actually arrived here, yeah. which is quite an interesting thought. Yeah. Oh, it really is. I think the thing that made me think more of a trade or exchange but about these obsidian uh, uh, blades is that they found a lot of them at this one site yeah. and I think that if they had been you know just passed hand to hand over a long period of time there probably wouldn't have been so many you know it would have been you'd mm. give you like one to each of your sons maybe or something. Mm. I don't know mm. um, but so yeah it was the fact that they were found together mm. uh, uh, sort of paints a, a potential picture in itself it's just fascinating that we're talking about you know so long ago you know that we have uh, we have almost nothing measurable to uh, to try to pull all those pieces together yeah. and it is it's just so intoxicating to try to make sense of it all mm. yeah, so, i mean some of the ethnographic 
work, I mentioned Pierre Petrican before, but some of his, his ethnographic studies have given us a bit of a window into possibilities for how this worked in Neolithic Europe. But, mm. you know, at the end of the day, who knows? Yeah. When we, when we think about uh, the travelling of artefacts, whatever they may be, mm. over a distance uh, at that time, before there was money, the question arises, it, it, was there some value system? Was there any kind of value system that would, any method of exchange, uh, a standard of exchange that makes sense of trade as far as we understand it? Or are we really um, barking up the wrong tree? Then? Well, no, I think it's important to make the distinction here. We always ask this question almost for the fun of it, because we know it's unanswerable. <laughs> but it's that thing of, like, you know, what, what is, it, is, it, uh, is it three pigs for a cow? Or, or is it 30 flint scrapers for a, um, you know, for a, a, a Langdale axe? Or a, you know, or a jade axe for a wife? Yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. Virginia, well, maybe... Yeah, because the basic thing is there's no getting away from the fact up, you know, Grimes Graves or up uh, Piker Stickle, they mm. were creating stuff on an industrial scale. So obviously they knew that that stuff had to be going somewhere. That mm. wasn't for local distribution. They knew it was going to be going further afield. It, it would well, it is interesting that they found a greenstone axe from Cornwall at Grimes Graves. Oh, that's isn't fascinating. It? So that's yeah. Quite, yeah. yeah. That's really interesting, that. That's the kind mm. of thing we mean, though, yeah. Mm. I don't know if you've had any thoughts along those lines yourself, but, yeah. That yeah, I mean, the the, the, Jay, the sorry, the Cornish axe at Grimes Graves is interesting. I find it interesting for a whole range of other reasons, which um, we were talking a little Go bit on, then. before. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, Cornish axe heads in in, in grooved ware and, uh, and and later contexts, I think, because you know we we axe heads were fascinating to people, not not just in the early Neolithic, but throughout the Neolithic and, and in later periods as well. The fact, you know, they'll crop up in Iron Age context. The Romans were fascinated by these things as well. Mm. Neolithic axe heads, Paleolithic hand axes as well. They crop up placed in, in Roman buildings. And it's, I, I find that fascinating, that, you know, the roles that these objects played in, in later societies as well. But, but why, why, why the Cornish axe in, in Grimes' graves? Well, it's, I, I, I'd like to do more with Cornish axes in the future. That's, mm. that's, that's all I'll say for now. But, um, yeah, fascinating stuff really interesting yeah I, I wondered if it was uh, you know if you were a trader from uh, from Cornwall you know and it took you however long to make a nice greenstone axe <laughs> but what you want is because there's not a huge amount of fl of uh, flint maybe uh, in certain parts of Cornwall you know maybe that what you actually wanted was a whole bag full of knives and scrapers <laughs> so you could just swap your nice greenstone axe for you know, however many. Um, on a different note, what happened to all the flint from Grimes' graves? I mean, where did that all go? I mean, that's a that's a complete mystery. Um, you know, there's vast vast amounts of flint came out of there, but you don't see the the you know, the amount you'd expect to see in the archaeological record. Oh, really? I I hadn't appreciated that before. I Not really many axe heads either. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, lots, like you say, lots of knives and scrapers. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. What were they doing with it all? What was it all about? Was it about the, the mining or was it about the objects? Yeah. Yeah. Or both? <sighs> uh, I've got to be honest, I hadn't even considered that as a... Was a thing. That's a very good point. I've gone off on a tangent now. Yeah, well, hey, no, we like tangents. We like tangents, <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's fine. But it makes me think of the question that was raised as, as to where all the copper 
is. Or was. The copper. Well, yeah, we have yeah. A, somebody, a friend of ours, who's not uh, a professional archaeologist by any means. He's a. Uh, uh, he's actually his speciality. Strangely, is a is a hunter. He likes to. Mm. Um, he, he's. A, I don't know if he's professional in that regard, but I'm he, not sure. Um, but he's he's spent a lot of time applying his knowledge of hunting in uh, Forest of Dean. Uh, and uh, f- trying to filter that through and, and work out what they were doing yeah, back he, then. Yeah, you know, he, he, of- he put us on a, a thing. We were um, with him well, a few months back, and uh, uh, because he has his replica Neolithic bow and yeah, and you know various weaponry, and it was that. Well, why don't you find any copper implements? Because Bronze Age, they remelted them to make bronze why would they not you've got a piece of inferior something that uh, you could remelt it and mix it with tin and suddenly you've got a far more durable implement it's a curious Uh, question though isn't it where is mm. the copper do we have jade instead i suppose is the uh, is one of the possibilities Mm. So are you talking from a symbolic uh, level there or as a no i was looking at the the circulation of, of jade axe heads in Europe and you've got the jade strand which seems to go towards the west and the, the copper and gold seems to be a more easterly distribution oh, really? of a similar kind okay. of uh, network yeah. okay. uh, I'm thinking of work by Lutz Klassen and others showing this it's, it's curious hmm. So different sources altogether you would think hmm. or not Different demands or di- well, different or different uh, source points for the for the goods Oh sure or, um, or different uh, just different ways of thinking about materials, possibly. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Talking about east-west uh, split, I'm yeah. just reminded of, of when you were at Cardiff, you uh, wrote a report about the geophysical survey. Did of, is it Arming's Hall, Henge? Arming Hall, Henge, Arming near, Hall, near Norwich, Henge. yeah. It's my undergraduate yeah. dissertation. I, I surveyed yes. Arming Hall, yes, yeah. <laughs> well, that Arming Hall survey um, yeah. was a curious one because um, I grew up in Norfolk, and as a small child, um, I, I spent a lot of time in, in Arming Hall with family members and was always told that there was a henge there when I was saying about I was interested in archaeology. And I used to look out of the car window, this is back to being age six, looking for this henge, and I was expecting to see Stonehenge. I was expecting yeah. to see those standing stones, and of course I never found it. Mm-hmm, so yeah. when I came to needing an undergraduate dissertation, I, wa- I thought, I'm going to go back to Norfolk and find this henge, you see, and I n- knew at that point <laughs> what I was looking for, as opposed to, uh, right. as opposed to Stonehenge in, yeah. in, in Norfolk <laughs> Field. It is interesting. Um, yeah. And uh, thankfully the people, I, I was able to geof- do a geophysical survey of the field, which had the henge in it, but also the field of, um, uh, sorry, the garden of a house nearby. Um, the people were very kind and remembered my grandparents, so allowed me to survey their garden, which uh, several years later had a certain irony to it, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah, we digressed uh, slightly, but um, it, yeah, going back to Chocolithic and, and, and that, and yeah, can we talk a little bit about the crossover from stone to, to metal? Sure. Yeah. Be more specific, Rupert. Uh, I don't think I need to be really, it, mm. uh, because it, it's something that you know we talked about, and we certainly it, it fascinated us as a specific thing uh, on your Bournemouth University. Goodness, page. did I write that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, it's interesting. It's uh, interesting. But, uh, no, just really interesting that, that you know the the relationship between. Uh, 
uh, stone and metal. And whether it was a completely different functionality uh, or or was there a transition from one to to the other or both, you know, it's... uh, Because obviously having metal blades apart from anything else hmm. uh, it, it's clearly culturally a very different space to be um, so yes yeah, just how, how you uh, what ideas you had about uh, about that transition and the relationship between the two I think going back to what I said earlier on about axe heads being these sort of microcosms of, of, of places they're pieces of places I mean this isn't one of my ideas hmm. this is something that's you know, widely accepted but in terms of those early networks for when we start looking at early metal production and the, the movement of the minerals and the metals that were needed, the way that, that stone um, sort of integrates with these kind of networks and how, I mean, this is part of my fascination with, with Cornwall, for example, of how these objects potentially, I, in, in my mind, I have an idea that Cornish axe heads potentially are, are, are moving a, a little later or had relevance perhaps later than some of the axe heads from the other parts of the country and I wonder how much of this is to do with the with these um, these networks for for um, early metal effectively mm. um, but that's something I'm, I'm going to be doing a bit more work on yeah, okay mm. have you been so bold as to um, suggest or, or have an idea um, that the sense of identity in relationship to stone uh, shifts when it become when it comes to metal. Um, I think I think it's yes. I think that yes. I think it is. I think it was already shifting quite a bit earlier as mm. well. Mm. I mean, you know, the the, the really highly polished, the, the the most beautiful stone axe heads what we're we're getting in the early neolithic um you get changes in form in the middle neolithic and you get these you know curious wasted examples of the sema type axe heads um occurring middle neolithic and then you get different forms again towards the end and Mm. um you know there is a dare i say a bit of a deterioration when it you know when it comes to to axe heads so there is a sort of a changing changing focus Mm. on things i think and 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 then obviously you know you've you've got metal taking over and how quickly how quickly did metal take over? I'm interested because um, uh, there must have been obviously a, uh, an area of overlap. Oh sure. Was it a question of um, the spread of technology, or was it a question of the spread of the artifacts themselves? Was the uh, technology owned? You know, was it uh, focused? Uh, was the technology centralised in any way whatsoever, um, or did the technology itself spread enough so that uh, the, the bronze took over very quickly from from stone? So, I mean, you're going to be starting with with metals as status objects, most likely prestigious objects. Yeah. But the day to day is going to be is going to be flint and stone. I mean, yeah. you look at any flint assemblage, you can see that, um, w- with the exception of a few specialist pieces, you see a general deterioration in the quality of the of the flint work through the Bronze Age. And oh, we really? um, yeah. and, and you yeah, know yeah. we understand now we we accept that uh, we'll get Iron Age flint assemblages going back a few decades. It, yes. it, you know, people didn't believe that there was flint working in the Iron Age because people had metal, but that just simply wasn't true. Yeah. So you, you, you've got a, you know, you've got an overlap. Oh, that, that's yeah. um, that's brilliant. That that kind of answers my question. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I'll d- digress slightly because a couple of weeks ago I was up at uh, Mitchell's Fold, um, uh, Shropshire, mm-hmm. which very nearby is one of these stone circles that's got an axe factory uh, n- nearby to it. And this, the, the, the circle itself is, is dated to the Bronze Age. Yeah. Um, and yet we've got a stone factory associated... Uh, Sound effect there, <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet we've we've got um, uh, an axe head factory uh, associated with it. And I'm thinking, well, that's you're calling that Bronze Age, but surely aren't we still in the Neolithic? If if that is so, are we still have we still got an axe factory operating in the Bronze Age when, in theory, we have metal impl- uh, metal weapons, metal uh, tools available. But equally, people would go back to the same special places within a landscape over time, and we see this yeah. We see this so often, don't we? I mean, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get Mesolithic flint assemblages followed by Neolithic monuments, and you'll get, you'll get all kinds of things, and you'll get Roman reuse, Anglo-Saxon reuse, you know, people, people mm. were going back to the same places. It gets a bit It uh, does. A bit mixed I up. mean, you look at things like river confluences, where everything was going on in the past, and, you know, these were yeah. you know, places where people came together, and, you know, mm. it's fascinating. But we do like to mix materials, don't we? I mean, even now, can you imagine if however many thousand years in the future people are excavating our blades then you know i mean now we're still making ceramic blades and you know so Mm -hmm. it's it's a big mixture something i did want to ask was again going back to the scandinavian axes so we've talked about how they've come into britain but how much do we know about how far they extended in other directions you know going east or or south? south um well, they were certainly... I mean, the, a bit of background, I suppose, to these Scandinavian axe heads that I was looking at. I mean, we're looking at these... They're made largely made of flint, 90-degree angled sides. They're quite distinctive mm. objects. But they were also these... For the, from the Funnel Beaker culture, the TRB, early Neolithic culture of, of Northern Europe, they were also produced in, in the subsequent single-grave culture... But they're you know, very slightly different finishes. But you find them in in the northern in the Netherlands as well. So some of these axe heads I was looking at in Britain um, were clearly made in Denmark. Others may have been made in the northern Netherlands. So these things were. I mean, the, the flint that's found in the northern Netherlands, Netherlands is, is smaller pieces. It's material that's come down um, in the Salian glaciation from from Denmark. So okay. in terms of a, um, a chemical signature, if you like, the raw material looks looks the same as if it was collected in directly in, in Denmark. Right. So we know these things were, were moving then um, between Scandinavia, between Denmark and the Netherlands, but they were also being made locally as well. So these rectangular sections, axe heads that we have here, could have been made in either places. Okay. But they were, they were potentially going further afield as well. Right. Just, just so people know, which particular sites in, in England are we talking about where um, finds have been made that... Uh, so, I mean, I put together a catalogue of axe heads of, of this Scandinavian type, these TRB or funnel beaker culture or single grave culture axe heads from Britain, um, and they were almost all um, stray finds, so out of context, sadly. Yeah. But we get there's quite a decent concentration in the River Thames, so river concentrations. I'm also working on the site, I'm writing up a site for a, con- a concentration in, um, in, in Wales, which is interesting in its own right. But there's one which was held up as being the classic 
um, example of a, of a Scandinavian of a TRB, a funnel beaker axe head from a datable context in Britain, which is Julie Berry's grave. Oh, I, I mentioned think that was yeah, the one you yeah, mentioned. Yeah, non-megalithic. Yes, that's what I was to yeah, do. yeah. <laughs> yeah. non-megalithic long barrow in Kent, and um, it was excavated by Ronald Jessup in 1938, and was always held up as the classic classic example. Yeah. Report by Stuart Piggott the following year, okay. but I went back and I had a look through the newspaper reports at the time, and uh, and I think there's a reasonable possibility that. It may have been planted in the exca- in the excavation site by somebody. Oh, um, I can't be I can't be sure of it, but it's um, it's it's different from most of the others that we've got from Britain. It's almost too good to be true, and the the times, the sequence of events, and the wording of the reports at the time, I think, mm-hmm. is enough to actually generate a little bit of uh, wow, okay. of suspicion. Um, I just think it it's a case of of making us look more closely at what we're what we're reporting and, and what we're sharing and, and con- you know what what things we're continuing to to churn out in the literature with actually you know we really need to go back again and look in that microscopic detail to make sure that we're 100 yeah. percent sure what we're saying is you know is really mm. true so yeah it's fascinating i enjoyed doing that bit of detective work <laughs> <laughs> I, do you know what i i think that's one of the most exciting things about all of it isn't it that there's an awful lot of stuff that you can piece together by inference rather than actual solid evidence showing you something yeah. and uh, I mean particularly you know looking at Ertz's uh, kit yeah. for want of a better word you know and uh, and how that had been gathered together from really quite a you know quite a wide radius really of where he was found and it's you have so many it paints so many different pictures you know, knowing that he had a kit bag that came from all over the place. Um, and he's just one of the very few that have ever been found. Absolutely. So, yeah. And the Amesbury Archer, of course. I mean, we you know. Oh, yes. Skipping kit. about a bit. I yeah. know, I know. It's just uh, <laughs> unfocused random thoughts. Movement <laughs> of people, objects and materials. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I think that fascinates us and fascinates many people is the um, just how huge uh, travel by sea was. Yeah, we really underestimate that part of the whole picture. Absolutely, I think in, in throughout almost all of the the Neolithic, perhaps. I get a little bit cross. Actually, this is not a place for me to be putting on my grouchy hat. Get, you just get I cross. Really, not seen it yet. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, it's that thing of that. There are so many things that are dismissed because there's no sure. evidence for yeah. them. Yeah. When it's just by the law of probability, you know that uh, that these were accomplished. Uh, see people yes. and so to assume that they didn't do something just because there's no evidence for it is yeah. uh, is silly clearly they were capable you know the polynesians used to lash their enormous uh, canoes mm. together and they would ferry 500 people 2000 miles so the notion of them not having done it uh, in prehistory oh, is just silly in my view uh, <laughs> in my view, underlined three times. And we just don't have the boats, but you know, people were clearly mm. going to see. Well, the aspect mm. of it that um, sort of the penny dropped for me a, a little bit—that um, mm. as far as trade is concerned, as far as exchange of anything, as, as far as getting from anywhere to anywhere is concerned—in many instances, it would have been easier to go by sea rather than mm. taking a, a direct 
cross-land route yeah. mm. uh, because were there the trackways? Uh, it was still largely forested yeah. and um, <laughs> easier to navigate a coast than to navigate through a forest, True, basically. Absolutely, <laughs> and making use of the rivers as, yes, you know, absolutely. as a, a natural, yeah. natural um, movement. And that in its turn has makes you, you know, you have to think about things in a very, very different way. Yeah. Mm. Otherwise, your thinking is skewed. And I'm sure there are many, many other ways in which our thinking is totally skewed and we have to unravel to uh, really mm -hmm. get down to the bottom of these things. Yeah, I mean, it's apt that we're sitting on a boat right now, but I think it must have been summer 2013, crossing Lime Bay, and it was like a mill pond the whole way across, completely yeah. dead calm. You know, you're several miles out to sea there, but it was completely still. And, you know, people in the past in, in fairly basic craft could have managed that no problem at all. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, Thor Heyerdahl did some pretty impressive stuff with uh, grass reed boats, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. You know, um, yeah. So, um, and Ra 1 and Ra 2. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything you think that we're missing? Some some crucial aspect of uh, the, the work that you've done with uh, axes and identity and all the rest of it that that, that we've we've missed? Um, you know, a, a sort of cornerstone of your thinking that is is crucial to really help people get to um, you know the, the the crux of of your book and, and paper and. PhD. I think something which, uh, although is raised from time to time, but is still really not dealt with as well as it could be, is the relationship between flint axe heads and yeah. axe heads of other made from other kinds of stone. Because you've got you've got the flint specialists and you've got the petrologists or petrographers, the people who understand where an axe head has come from or where it originated based on matching that that geology, if you like, the raw material, understanding in that context, and the two. There aren't many of us that look at, at both sides of that, and I think we yeah. really need mm. to. I mean, um, the work of Projet Jad uh, with, the, with the jade axe heads and um, the recognition that, or the realisation that we're getting copies of jade axe heads made in, in other kinds of rock. You're getting the mm. Langdale axe heads um, made to look like jade examples. You're getting flint uh. axe heads made in the jade forms. I mean, right. some okay. of these had been picked up um, by by colleagues in the Projet Ad team. I noticed some others. There was an example from Cambridge, which was a perfect Altenstadt-style jade, but it was made from flint. And oh, wow. um, without really looking at both, if you're just looking at one or the other, you don't see those crossovers. Um, and it's it's that yeah that influence of um, you know of these other these axes coming from from elsewhere and how they're actually picked up as part of the culture at the time over here and how they how they were you know how, how they made an impression or an impact on on what was going on here that is such a good point it that is. is such a good thing that yeah. that how things appeared was more important or you know in certain aspects that uh, how something appeared there was a style element going on here yeah, yeah. But you can see all sorts of nuances there though can't you that um, you know there are certain types of stone that might be uh, really tough, you know, have a, <laughs> an immense hardness, so they don't, you know, and don't fracture easily. That uh, somebody could see, well, actually, the, the weight and style of that is great for this particular yeah. job, if you like. But if you make it with flint as opposed to jadeite, 
then, I don't know, maybe it gives you a different cutting edge. Even. Well, my understanding there is that, though, that the, the, that nails it for me, that those artefacts were being created mm-hmm. uh, for their appearance, not for their use. If, uh, if um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And you've got both. You've got the you know the workaday things that are made for cutting down trees or for other purposes, mm. for skinning mm. animals, whatever. But then you've got those things that are made because of, of you know the way they look and, and to replicate a particular style or to to you know reproduce this this cultural social yeah. meaning. I mean, if something's mm. a tool, style, uh, you know, appearance, form <laughs> follows function. But in this case, form is not following function; it's following an idea. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we know, going back to the jade, you know, you've got these blocks that are quarried from these sites a couple of thousand metres up in the Italian Alps, a bit more mm. than that in some cases, and, and you're getting rough outs, and then you're getting the axe heads being reshaped in the Paris Basin, then they're travelling down, in some cases, to the Morbihan area of, of Britain, the Morbihan yeah, region of yeah, Brittany, where, yeah. they're, where they're reshaped and they're given, a, they're given yeah. another polish to... to replicate a particular style yeah. and they were given this really you know this high gloss polish wow. which took over a thousand hours to 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 create before many cases well in some cases they crossed the water yes mm. it's mm. yeah it's breathtaking amount of uh, work isn't it and they were very busy down there in morbihan mm-hmm. they in were. The back. yes yeah. wow. cracking sites there mm? cracking sites oh gosh yeah, yeah. Goodness. Well, I, I'm, I'm all out of questions. Are you all out of questions? I'm all out of questions. I, I'm, I'm pretty much all out of questions. I think uh, probably the, uh, an important way to uh, begin wrapping up is thinking, well, what, you, what, what next? Yeah. What next? Yeah, um, what are you doing now? What am I doing? Oh, cracky. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to finish a, a several flint assemblages, writing up flint assemblages that I've, I've committed to, so I'm doing those at the moment, <laughs> so that <they're, laughs> that's the day-to-day. Um, what next? I... I'd like to go across to France and have a look for British axe heads in the French museum collections, something I'm keen to do. I'm also keen to do more work on Cornish axe heads, particularly um, looking at contextual studies of, um, of the deposition of Cornish axe heads and, and, and axe heads in Neolithic axe heads in later contexts as well to see if we understand their significance, for example, when we're talking about the use of metal and so on and the roles they may have played in, in, in time going forward. Mm. Fantastic. Never run out of things to do. No, I, I think we, we won't ever run out of things to do, will we? There's mm. just too much to be dug out as twere. And the great problem you'd like to solve? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Crikey. Great problem I'd like to solve. Um, I'd still like to know for sure whether, I keep going back to Jade, but whether these things really did appear in Britain in the century shortly after 4000 BC. I mean, the example from Bremer, this beautiful jade axe head from Bremer, has, you know, it's got a very early date and it's, it's, it's some people, Dave, I'm thinking Dave Field and colleagues have argued that it may well have come across in what was then the new, uh, the Mesolithic period in Britain and we can't rule that out 100% you know the rest of them may have come over in centuries later mm. and it's if they did it would change the whole relationship between between the imports and British quarrying and axe production because we're, we're thinking that jade is leading the way and we're responding to that when in fact you know the, these these things are deposited in places where um Places where the where we had our own sources of stone were not the places where the jade was deposited. So there was mm. a, there's a curi- potentially a curious relationship there. And uh, uh, yeah, well, when did they arrive? When did mm. they arrive? 
Kath, thank you so much for your time and your enthusiasm and entertaining us uh, in um, in Southampton Marina. Indeed, <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. What On fun. the broomstick. On broomstick, <laughs> yeah. indeed. Yeah. Excellent. Um, I was trying to think how to wrap up there. No, no, wrap up. Yeah, Michael. I'll, I'll probably, um, probably wrap up in um, in post. In post. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should look at something other than axe heads. Maybe that's the answer. But uh, well, I, I don't know. know. I love them so much. But we're we're kind of. Uh, uh, we, we do have a thing about axe heads, so we, uh, you know, it just made <laughs> it just made sense for us to uh, yeah, yeah. to be talking to you. Um, but clearly, there's no cure for it. Though. No, there is no cure for it. No, 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 absolutely not. No, long may long may that continue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. No, thank yeah. Thank you. Time for another cup of tea, I think. What Excellent. a good idea. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. Our aim is to produce the best megalithic content available anywhere. If you did enjoy this program and you haven't done so already, please consider supporting us and helping us produce more megalithic and antiquarian content, both through our podcasts and through our YouTube channel, by becoming a patron of Standing With Stones. You can do so for less than a pound a month, but there are other levels of contribution that get you all manner of exclusives and specials available only to our Patreon supporters. Go to patreon.com slash standingwithstones, browse the four reward levels, and choose one that works for you. Thank you so much. We'll be with you again soon.